On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. It would be good, Mike, just to spend a moment or two thinking about the scriptures that Jesus followed. I mean, maybe even that word isn't a word that everybody is familiar with. What do we mean by scriptures? Well, scripture is a word meaning that which is written down. And for Jews, Jews have always been known as a people of the book. The things that were written down in their holy writings, in their scriptures, which they call the Tanakh. It's an acronym, T-A-N-A-K, the T stands for Torah, the first five books of the Bible. N stands for Nevi'im, the prophets. K stands for Ketuvim, the writings. And the Jewish scriptures, which are the same as Christian scriptures, but they are collected in a different order under those three groups of headings. So those are the scriptures that Jesus would have known, loved, taught and followed as he grew up. So that explains why we're here at the Shrine of the Book. Yeah, absolutely. The book being the book of these scriptures, God's word given to his people. And where we are is an absolutely amazing place. This Shrine of the Book is in the grounds of the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, a particular part of the museum that was built to house some of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered at Qumran, where the Essenes or the Yahad, the community of God's people, those who thought they were God's true people, lived in seclusion and where they faithfully copied the scriptures and sought to live them out. And during the Jewish-Roman War in AD 66 to 70, when the writing was on the wall for them and they could see that really there was going to be no hope for them surviving there, they copied their scriptures, put them into sealed jars as we look at in another episode with lids on top of them and they were sealed and they, they stayed there for hundreds and hundreds of years until they were eventually discovered by, by Bedouin. And what we are looking at here is sort of two aspects of uh, this museum. On one side of it is actually the roof of the museum, um, which is done in the shape of the lids of those jars that they put those scriptures in. Now, for anyone who's into cooking, uh, it looks a bit like a tagine pot yeah. uh, with, the, with the sort of hole at the top that, that lets light in. And it's done in small uh, white uh, metro tiles. And it, it's in the middle of a pond, a square pond that goes all around it. So that's the roof. That's done in white to remind us that the Essenes, the Yahad, saw themselves as the sons of light. Dead opposite is a huge slab of black marble stones making up just this slab, really, of darkness to bring home that the Yahad, the Essenes, saw everyone else in the world as sons of darkness. So these two things, the white top of the jars being represented there and the dark slab behind us, recalls their struggle between themselves, the sons of light, and the rest of the world, the sons of darkness. And as you go down the stairs just behind this 
black slab of marble behind us, go through the doors, you go down through a tunnel as though you're going into the cave. They've done it beautifully. They tried to make it look as if you're going into the caves to discover these scrolls for themselves. And you see some, some ancient copies of writings there. Um, but right in the middle of the dome, there is this amazing copy of the Isaiah scroll one huge scroll of all those chapters of Isaiah. It's not the real thing. The real thing is actually preserved elsewhere, but it is a, a copy of it. And it just brings home to us that simple truth that, you know, scriptures in those days weren't in books. They weren't on your phone. They were on scrolls of parchment that were on poles that you had to unroll to find the place that you were reading from that day. So in this building are what? Copies of the scriptures that Jesus would have been familiar with? Yes, very much so. And then some of the Jewish writings that commented upon them. So yeah, it really does bring us very much to uh, the scriptures that Jesus grew up with and that Jesus loved. So what was Jesus' view of those scriptures? Well, uh, as a Jew, he would have grown up loving and trusting these scriptures that have been handed down through the ages. He had an incredibly high view of the scriptures that God gave. In fact, one of the places we see that is in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 5, 17, we read Jesus saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. Now, law of prophets, they're used as a familiar shorthand for law, prophets, writings, those three categories. So don't think that I've come to abolish God's word that we've been given. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus here has a very, very high view of scripture and note not just the ideas of scripture, for Jesus, it was the very wording of scripture that came from God. When he says, you know, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke in the old King James version, not one jot or tittle, <laughs> which sounds rather dated these days. But it, Hebrew has lots of little marks um, that are there. And, and what Jesus is saying, not so much as the tiniest little mark over a letter will disappear from God's word until everything is accomplished, no doubt referring to when he returns at the end of the age. So he has this very high view of scripture, not just its ideas, but its very words. And he has an absolute passionate commitment to this word being given in order to be lived out in everyday life. Not like the scribes and Pharisees, you know, teaching others but never doing it. No, his Bible, his scriptures, the word of God, was given for life and for making a difference. As far as you know, did Jesus have a sort of daily pattern of just reading the scriptures, meditating on it? Well, you know, he didn't have his own copy of the Bible and he certainly didn't have a phone in his pocket 
you know, that he could scroll to a reading for the day. What he would absolutely have done as a good Jew growing up would have been to hear the scriptures being read every time he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. So week by week, he would absolutely have given himself to studying those scriptures. It seems like he memorized the scriptures because that was a very common thing to do in these days. Remember in days when you've not got your own Bible and when parchment is incredibly expensive, only the rich can afford things written down. So what the ordinary people used to have to do was, was to memorize scripture. And actually we get an instance into where Jesus clearly seems to have done that in Matthew chapter four, when he's led out by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted and tested by Satan. And every time that the devil comes with a challenge to him, what does he say? It is written. Now, two things here. First of all, he believed in the power of the word of God. When Satan attacked, what did he do? He quoted scripture to him. It is written, it is written, it is written on each of those three attacks. But the interesting thing is each of the scripture verses that he responds with all come from Deuteronomy. What was Deuteronomy? It was the account of God's people Israel living in the wilderness in those years between leaving Mount Sinai and going on to the promised land. And so it looks like Jesus had been reflecting on and meditating on those scriptures from Deuteronomy in order to be able to pull them out of his heart at the moment he needed them. You know, that's why it's so important today to, to memorize some key scriptures. You know, it's I love the fact that you can just put your hand in your pocket, grab your phone and find a verse that you're looking for. But we might not always have our phones there. We might not always have a search engine. And to be able to memorize some key scriptures that you can pull out fast when you haven't even got time to get your hand in your pocket to get your phone, but to be able to declare those scriptures, whether it's when Satan is attacking, whether it's when you're praying for something, whether you're in some difficult situation, to be able to quote scripture like Jesus did with a conviction that it has power, not because it's magic, but because this is what God said. And he always has the final word. So even that, that example you mentioned in the wilderness, when he says it is written, it's not that he's just saying, well, the Bible says so. No, not at all. Uh, and Jesus never uses the Bible as a, as a sort of, you know, magic words to say over situations. These come out of life experience. They are the eternal word of God that he's memorized, that he's proved in his own life, that he's seen, worked as he grew up. And that now as he's put them into his treasure chest, um, he's able to pull them out. I can remember some years ago, um, I was teaching at a, a seminary in India. And one of the students came to me and, and said towards the end of the week, Oh, Pastor Mike, I want you to pray for me. I want to know the Bible like you know the Bible. Would you pray for me? As though my prayer was suddenly going to drop all these verses magically from heaven into him. And I said, well, I'll tell you this. I'll pray for you if you'll give yourself to memorizing them. And we really do have to do that. But I tell you what, I can tell you and testify from my own life experience both personally and as a pastor to be able to have these words hidden in your heart 
so that you can pull them out at times of need is powerful because they're not my words, they're his words, God's words. So Jesus had this amazing memory bank of verses from his scriptures and how then did he draw on them in, in other times? Well, um, he used them particularly in engaging in debate, particularly with some of the religious leaders. I mean, if we just look at three examples quickly, um, here's an example, first of all, where he used the scriptures to challenge self-righteousness, of which there was lots in Jesus' time. Here's Mark 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law had come from Jerusalem. They gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? In other words, he's very self-righteous. Your disciples aren't, aren't living life like we are living, are we? They're not keeping the rules, full of self-righteousness. And Jesus uses scripture to answer them. He said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites as it's written, and then he quotes from Isaiah. He's not got a Bible to turn to. He's memorized this. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. So he's using the Bible here to, to challenge to get people to think about what God says about an issue rather than what their tradition says, what they've been accustomed to believing. A second example is that he used the Bible to answer questions when people came. For example, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, a well-known story that led to the telling of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So an expert in the law, an expert scribe, rabbi, someone who was well-versed in the Bible, in other words. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How is it written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? So he pushes it back to this man. And of course, he'll give the answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, do this and you'll live. And he goes on to say, yeah, but the hard thing is to know who is my neighbor. And Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan at that point. So he's here using the Bible to, to answer questions, to throw it back to people, to get them to reflect on what they themselves have been reading. So to challenge sort of self-righteousness and wrong views, to, to answer questions. And there's sometimes he uses it quite simply to, to bring an end to debate. There's an example in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 41, when the Pharisees are 
coming together to have another go at Jesus. And he asks them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they, of course, give the textbook correct theological answer. The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, and then he quotes scripture, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In other words, the Lord God said to, this is David speaking, the Lord God said to my Lord Messiah, sit at my right hand. But hang on, he says, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? So it's a, it's a bit of a, a sort of testing question that he's asked them there. So in all those three different examples, going back to the scriptures was a, a really fundamental way for Jesus of dealing with people for whom the scriptures were important. Now, of course, when he was sharing the good news with people who weren't rooted in the scriptures, he would use completely different methods. So I'm not suggesting that the only way we can do our evangelism or our ministry these days is to Bible bash people and throw verses at people. There are some for whom that's meaningless. We have to start in a different place. But certainly with, when engaging with those who know at least some of the Bible, to be able to use the Bible to shape their thinking, to challenge their thinking was one thing that Jesus often did and that we can still do today. It's one of the things we get wrong today, misquoting scripture and quoting it out of context. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, that was one of the things that the scribes and Pharisees love to do. And Jesus will constantly take them back to the heart of it. Maybe it's just an opportunity to say, you know, when we read the Bible, we really need to make sure we're not cherry picking verses. Uh, and just picking out a verse that day that we want or because it suits our need that day. I have always been a great believer since I became a Christian at the age of 18 and I was taught this by those young Christians around me at that time. I was taught the importance of steadily reading through the Bible day by day. You know, whether it's a whole chapter or a section really doesn't matter. But the thing is about doing that systematically, regularly. You can't cherry pick a verse. You can't pick the passage that you want for that day. So systematically reading the Bible is a brilliant way of making sure that you see the whole breadth of scripture. And I'll tell you what, David, I have found over all these decades of being a Christian that when you do that, God has a way of making just the right verse appear on just the right day, just when you need it. I'm sure it's not meant, but this is called the shrine of the book where we are. You could interpret that as a sense of worshipping God's word. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, you could almost challenge the scribes and Pharisees for that because they so worshipped the word and their interpretation of that word that at times it let God get squashed out of the picture. And the whole of Jesus's ministry with them, of course, was bringing God right back full center into the picture and letting him triumph over all their interpretations. 
over the years there have been Christians who've done the same as well, haven't they? Um, and it's a fine line between believing that this book, the Bible, really is the Word of God. It doesn't contain the Word of God. The trouble is with saying it contains the Word of God is it lets you pick and choose which bits you think of the Word of God and you can get rid of the other bits. No, it is the Word of God. The Bible's very clear. Paul says that all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for correcting, for training in righteousness. But sometimes it's possible to so focus on the Bible and wanting a literal interpretation of the Bible, say, for example, where it's as clear as the nose on your face, it's meant to be not literal, but a picture or metaphorical. And people can dig themselves in and become bibliolatrists, worshippers of the Bible rather than worshippers of God. I love the Bible. I believe it is truly, fully the word of God. But you know what? The Bible is not God. The Bible is meant to lead me to God. The Bible is meant to reveal Jesus to me. My relationship is with God and with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit, not with the Bible. The Bible is the best tool I have to growing that relationship. But the minute it starts slipping and becomes almost God, frankly, we have made it an idol. We have made it a shrine. I'm sure you've been asked this many times. Where do you start if you're going to read through the Bible in some way? Well, look, it, it depends sort of who's asking that question. If it was someone asking me, as just asked me the other day, either someone who's not a Christian or perhaps who's a Christian who's not read very much of the Bible previously, I would say, look, it's very simple. You need to start with Jesus. Why? Because he is the central focus of the Bible. Everything leads up to him. The whole of the Old Testament prepares the way for him, points to him. The whole of the New Testament focuses around him and his message. So start with the Gospels. Start probably in our generation, I would say, probably start with Luke's Gospel. The thing is, Matthew's Gospel was originally written for Jewish people and so it's got lots of Jewish background, lots of quotes from the Jewish scriptures that can sometimes be hard for us to understand. Uh, John is very philosophical and reflective. Now if you're a very philosophical, reflective sort of person that can be a good one to begin with. But Mark and Luke, um, Luke's that little bit longer and that little bit fuller, um, really help us focus on the person of Jesus and who he was and why he came. So I would say, take a section. You don't even have to read a whole chapter. Take a section of either Mark or Luke's gospel and, and begin to read that and pray, Jesus, if you are who this book tells me you are, then please speak to me, reveal yourself to me as I'm reading. Uh, it's good then perhaps to go on to something like the book of Acts, which is the story of what happened to the first followers of Jesus as they went out with the message. If you want to dip into the Old Testament, some of the Psalms are really great, helpful. They're the worship book of Israel. They're the hymn book, if you like, of the Old Testament. Though even there, some of them are pretty tough to understand. Some are very straightforward. Some are a bit more demanding. If you want a book of 
exciting adventures and stories with how this whole story began. Read Genesis or Exodus, which is the story of not only how everything began, but how the story of God's people began through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And there's just some great stories there of how God intervened in ordinary people's lives and called them to have a bigger purpose than they could have ever imagined. So there's just a few ideas that could get people going. If you've been a Christian for a while, uh, you know, either work through alternating between Old and New Testament. There are lots of Bible notes available these days, either in booklet form or online. I would say one of the key things is variety. You know, have some sort of variety that quite simply stops you getting bored. And if you start right at the beginning with Genesis and work your whole way through, good for you if you can do it. But the truth is that is quite challenging for most Christians. And by the time they get to Leviticus with all its details about the laws of the Old Testament, it's probably getting a bit wearying. So variety helps tremendously. Just back to Jesus for a second and his scriptures. As he read those scriptures, quite amazing to think that he read about himself in them. <laughs> That's a really great thought, David. Um, yeah, because so many of these scriptures point it to him. And I mean, yeah, just put yourself in that situation. What must it have been like to have thought that 700 years before you came into this world, the Holy Spirit had put words on the lips of people like Isaiah and Micah to prophesy some of the smallest details of your life that you will fulfill. It, it must have been amazing, but I think also tremendously reassuring to let you know that you really were fully in line with everything that the Father had planned. Have you got an example? Uh, yeah, well, well, here's one uh, that comes from the final week of Jesus's life. It was when Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him. Um, and in Matthew 26, verse 31, we read, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, quote, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. A quote there from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. So there is Jesus bringing in prophecies to authenticate, in that case, one of his own predictions, one of his own prophecies. So as we conclude this conversation about the scriptures that Jesus had and think about the Bible that we have, we are truly blessed. Oh, incredibly so. And I think sometimes we, we take the Bible for granted. You know, we can be very casual with it. We just you know, shrug our shoulders. Have I, have I read it today? Oh, no, I got up late. I haven't had time. I came back from work late, I'm feeling a bit tired now. And I think Christians today can often be very blasé and forget what a privilege it is for us to have a Bible, whether it's a paper Bible in our hands, or an electronic Bible on our phones. Do you know, all around the world today, there are people who still don't have free access to the Bible. I've worked in China with churches there for a, a number of years. Uh, and the Bible is still a banned book there. It's still very difficult to get your hands on it. There are other places like that as well where the Bible is banned. Some of the stricter Muslim nations, for example. 
And here are people who can't get hold of the Bible and who would give anything for it. I remember many, many years ago when I was a student at Theological College, I helped lead a tour that eventually ended up taking us through Russia at a time when it was behind the Iron Curtain. For the whole week that we were there, we were followed by the KGB. Everything we did was monitored. We had to have a government-approved guide who made sure where we could and couldn't go, but we, we managed to persuade them to let us go and visit the Baptist church uh, in Leningrad. And uh, they insisted that we went upstairs in the balcony to be kept from the people down below so we couldn't mingle with them. So they wanted to show there was openness of religion, but of course they didn't want us to mix. But at the end of the service, I don't know quite how we wangled it, but somehow I think through a mixture of cajoling and coercion and just pushing through the crowd, we got to mingle with some of the Christians. And I will never forget this, David. An older woman in a headscarf with wrinkled skin on her face saw me holding my Bible and she took it out of my hands tenderly and just began to turn its pages and look at it. Now, it was actually upside down, but of course she didn't know. And eventually she got to Matthew's gospel and suddenly realized it was upside down, turned it round, saw the heading, the gospel of Matthew, and looked at me and said with tears in her eyes, ah, Matthias, Matthias. She'd remembered it, closed the Bible slowly and gave it back to me. You see, that woman didn't have a Bible. At that time, many of them, as the pastor was preaching, were writing down by hand Bible verses he was preaching from. Now, that was many decades ago, but there are still many places in the world where that is true today. Today in the West, we have access not only to the Bible, but so many editions of it, so many helps for it. And frankly, we've got no excuse. And if we're not reading it, if we've not got a passion for it, I think we need to be asking ourselves why. Because Jesus, as we've seen, passionately believed this book was the word of God, was passionate in living out its principles and was passionate in sharing it with other people. I just think we need to be praying, Lord, would you please forgive our laziness at times and give us the same passion for the scriptures that you yourself had? Well, why not pray that prayer now? Lord Jesus, we pause to remember the great love and affection that you had for the scriptures. You saw it as your Father's word. And we pray, Lord, that we might have the same love and passion for the word, not as an end in itself, but as one of your chief means of showing us what your Father is like, what his purposes are all about, why you came, and what you're calling us to. May we not neglect your word, shape it to our own inclinations, or simply deny it by the way that we live. 
your word, Lord, is truth and life and power. And so we pray that you would help us live in it and from it. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.